Hello and welcome to the weekly eye-catching words podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. If you have listened before, welcome back. This week's bumper episode contains a fascinating link between oven chips and health and safety, a question about how Jane Eyre would have handled living in the digital age, and a self-indulgent look at the world of art, focusing on the current Tate Cezanne exhibition. There is also a slightly mind-boggling argument in favour of cannibalism. But please, don't try it at home. Eating people is very obviously wrong. But first, let's head to London on a gloomy Sunday for an interview with a veteran of the English Civil War and some fascinating insights into the clothing, weapons and history around the period of the death of King Charles I. A very civil war. It was my pleasure to see the good people from the English Civil War Society, ECWS, in action in London today. I stumbled on this event, which takes place just off Trafalgar Square on the last Sunday of every January, purely by accident. It just happened to coincide with my arrangement to meet with my eldest son for lunch. He is a passionate historian, so it was a perfect fit in terms of helping us to work up an appetite for a Sunday roast. The history goes like this. On the 30th of January 1649, King Charles was led onto a scaffold erected outside the banqueting house on Whitehall to be executed after a series of events which had brought him into conflict with Parliament and a section of the English people who could see their Protestant country drifting back towards Catholicism. The execution of a reigning monarch was about as big as it gets in historical terms, and still resonates down the years, to the point that the ECWS has, for the last half century or more, made a pageant of it. And what a sight it is. The society has an avowed aim of trying to stimulate interest in the authentic recreation of 17th century military and civil life, and seeking to recreate that period in British history when the country was torn apart by a civil war. Historical authenticity in terms of clothing, artefacts, methods, weapons and tactics is a keynote of their approach. And believe me, they do it very well. And not only that, but they do it in a way that really brings history to life. Plus, they come across as really nice people. Forget the digital world for a moment and listen to this brief interview, which gives you an account of the Society's work. You guys do this every year. You've been doing do. it for over 50 years. This is our 51st. 51st year. Um, and it's a wonderful pageant. But um, to what extent do you really subscribe to the whole belief that he was mar- that Charles I was martyred? Or is it just a, a great pageant? Everyone's got their own opinions about Charles I. Let me stress yeah. that the English Civil War Society is an apolitical, yeah. non-religious organisation. Totally, totally. We're here for the fun, and, we, and we're here for, as an educational, Absolutely. historical mm. thing. Um, personally speaking, for myself only, I think, the trial was a bit of a show trial. I'd agree There with was no way he was going to walk, yeah. and they wanted rid of him, because as long as he was alive, he was a beacon to which anyone that didn't like Oliver Cromwell would rally. Yeah. So his death was a, I think, his death was a political experience. Yeah, this was about politics, not about right or wrong, essentially. Yeah. 
and of course he threw religion into the mix, which as we all know is a camp follower in many wars, yeah. didn't help. Mm, yeah. Didn't help. Yeah, the guys in yellow are from the Roundheads, they're our opponents on the field in the summer. Not all of them are here. And they've done their own march for the death of Oliver Cromwell on occasion, yeah. uh, where we act as stewards for that, as a, as a courtesy. We used to have the police do the stewarding, but then they wanted, um, yeah. they wanted money. It got expensive, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it got very expensive. Now, on, on that topic, I mean, the, the clothes and, and the, the arms... Uh, and the kit. The kit is fantastic. I mean, it, do you do all that at your own expense? Yes. Yeah. Um, that's um, a suit, tremendous suit I've got this suit, jacket and trousers I bought at Traders Fair in the autumn. It was £174. Yeah. It's wool. It's lined with linen. The shirt is linen, which is authentic to the yeah. period. It's Everyone authentic. Wore linen. See, I told you that word. Everyone wore... Every, there's that word again. Yeah. Um, everything. I try and be as authentic as I can. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. We, we, yeah. It's good value for money, actually. Obviously, this isn't sharp. Yeah. No, but no, this no. is... Not only is it a weapon, yeah. it's also a badge of office. Yeah, this yeah. is what officers carry okay. on the okay. Officers yeah. wore their own clothes. This yeah. is a gentleman's suit. The guys are wearing their own trousers and a soldier's coat. Yeah. Colour-coded, a bit like football teams. Yeah. So every regiment wore a different colour. So I'm, I'm just wondering, are the muskets actually registered as firearms? Registered as shotguns. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. Okay, that's, that's fascinating. I, I have a musket muskets. myself. One of my colleagues is carrying it on a courtesy. Mm. I have my licenses with me at all times. Matchlocks, aren't they? Matchlocks. Yes. Well done. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's a proper student of history, this one. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do the reenactments, um, how accurate? I mean, just taking, for instance, muskets and the rate of fire and reloading. I can reload. How accurate is all that? I can reload in about 20 seconds. And I'm, it, I've been shooting very, for a long time. That is very impressive. And the effective range on the minutes now. The you effective range is about from here to lady in the purple coat and the blue hat. Right. 80 to 100 yards. Okay. Yeah. But there's yeah, no yeah. accuracy. Oh, good lord. No. <laughs> That's why they all yeah. fired in blocks. Absolutely. Oh, fired in blocks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the, the musket ball was about the size of a Fine young cannibalism. There are many inventions that are always promised but never seem to arrive, or at least not quite in the way that we'd imagined. Examples include a universal cure for all cancer and a hoverboard of the kind that they have in Back to the Future. But one invention that does seem to be in danger of becoming a reality is cultured meat. If you're not aware of this, it is meat grown from animal cells without actually harming any animals. So, for instance, you could take a sample of cells from a pig or a sheep and a laboratory near you could actually grow it into a pork chop or a rack of lamb. Well, maybe not quite that simple, but that is the basic principle. Now, this raises a number of very interesting questions, not least of which is whether it still constitutes exploitation of animals and whether the ends justify the means. A dyed-in-the-wool vegan or an animal rights campaigner would definitely say that it is unethical. After all, if you subscribe to the view that all species are created equal, then humanity has no right to go stealing a pig's cells without its consent, which, of course, it cannot give. A pragmatist, however, would argue that the world is wedded to its burgers and it must be more practical, ethical and environmentally sound to produce cultured meat rather than raising animals for slaughter. 
The issue of the environment is a huge selling point for those who are investing in this startup. They point to the fact that meat production is a major factor in global warming due to the sheer number of animals involved, the amount of acreage given over production and the transportation costs and the costs associated with growing feed for the animals. In any real-world argument, they would say it has to be better. Oliver Millman wrote an article in The Guardian last week about he, as a vegetarian, had tried lab-grown meat taken from a pig in New York State called Dawn. Apparently it was pretty good, and he was shown pictures of the donor, although it's not clear whether she has her own Instagram account yet. They're also working on other animals, including cows, sheep and ducks. In Singapore, this technology is already a reality, and has been since 2020, presumably because their equivalent of the Food and Drug Administration moves a bit quicker, or just isn't that bothered. For me, the consent issue seems to be a major stumbling block here. I worry about Dawn the pig and someone sneaking up to her when she's asleep and extracting cell samples. I know pigs are intelligent, but I can't imagine them understanding the question, can I take your cells, and doing a one-trotter knock for yes and two-trotter knocks for no response. However, there is a solution, and one which I think fits perfectly with the culture of the world we live in today. Celebrity cannibalism. Now, if no one is actually harmed in the process of making cultured meat, what is wrong with eating people? More to the point, what is wrong with eating people who can give their consent? And if millions of tonnes can be grown from one sample, why not just go down the route of harvesting cells from famous people who can monetize their butt cheeks? And let's be honest, already do. Over time, this could be revolutionary. Killing and eating animals would, of course, become illegal. It would be okay to eat a slice of Kevin Bacon, but not a slice of actual bacon. You could actually eat Reese Witherspoon with a spoon. Lindsay Lohan would change her name to Lindsay Loham and market herself with the slogan, At last, anyone can have a piece of me, and I'm lower in fat than other famous people. And don't even get me started on meatloaf. There would be deviants out there, of course. People who insisted in running a black market where you could still buy real animals and eat them on the grounds that all humans taste like chicken. Donald Trump, of course, would doubtless declare cultured meat un-American just as he levelled the same accusation against veganism some years ago. Yes, it's true, the Donald is so paranoid he even sees vegans as a threat. 300 years ago, Jonathan Swift famously and anonymously suggested in his pamphlet A Modest Proposal that the best way to prevent famine was to start eating children. This was a scandalous piece of work which provoked a number of different responses, including some very amusing counter-satire. One respondent suggested eating MPs as they were fond of roasting each other in Westminster anyway. According to a Wikipedia article... I quote, although it may benefit the individual, it has been shown that the presence of cannibalism decreases the expected survival rate of the whole population and increases the risk of consuming a relative. Other negative effects may include the increased risk of pathogen transmission as the encounter rate of hosts increases. Cultured meat, however, need not hide its light under this bushel. It is quite possible for us to indulge in cannibalism 
with none of the qualms associated with it, since no one would get hurt, and all the food chain issues such as pathogens and accidentally eating your own auntie could be dealt with in the laboratory. And I would suggest that the UK is the perfect country for starting this revolution in eating habits. Post-Brexit, deregulated Britain could lead the world in eating people to reduce our carbon footprint. Let us embrace this idea. Let us, as a nation, put our best foot forward. Ideally, properly boned and served en croute. Jane Eyre in an age of overstimulation. I'm still working my way through Jane Eyre. It's a slow process with me reading apart from once a year when I indulge in some competitive behaviour with my booker group. Then I become ferocious and gorge myself in a literary feeding frenzy. Last year I read all 13 books in eight weeks. My hair got long I started growling at dogs and lived on a diet of beer and crackers. I had to be the first to read the lot, despite cries of it's not a competition from the rest of my group, although in truth I was still concealing my shame at only having finished 11 of the 13 books the year before. This in many ways sums up one of my principal anxieties about life, namely that I just can't absorb everything that is out there inevitably compare myself to successful people and as a result feel like a failure and slip into a form of paralysis. I sometimes look at my emails from Literary Hub and fall into despair at the amount of stuff I haven't read. Hundreds of brilliant new books seem to be published every day. They come out faster than Netflix originals and Prime miniseries. Overwhelmed, I fall into depression and make one more cup of tea and drink it whilst playing yet another game of Carcassonne on my iPad. Once a year I do the Booker thing and my intellectual apotheosis is fleeting but intense. Oh yes, I've read all the long list, I said, dinner parties, in an off-hand way, as if that was nothing compared to what I got up to after breakfast. This seems to work. For the next 12 months people assume I am bookish when I am not. I recently came across a section in Jane Eyre that really struck a chord with me. Jane, if you don't know the plot, is a governess who has overcome all the abuse and neglect of her childhood years and somehow made it into adulthood, not only physically intact, but with a balanced view of life and a keen wit. Her observations of male-dominated society, and in particular the behaviour of Mr Rochester, prompt her to note the following. It is vain to say human beings ought to be satisfied with tranquillity. They must have action, and they will make it if they cannot find it. Women are supposed to be very calm, generally, but women feel just as men feel. They need exercise for their faculties, and a field for their efforts as much as their brothers do. I am taking the words action and exercise here to mean having something to do that is genuinely stimulating, rather than assuming that Jane Eyre likes going out after a pub sesh and looking for a fight, or is a devotee of some 19th century gymnasium. She has started falling for Rochester at this point in the novel because he offers her these very qualities, a sparring relationship, one in which her opinion shows he sees her as an equal, 
although in fact she is superior to him in many ways, not least ethically, and in terms of emotional intelligence. But my point is this. People need something to stimulate them, and for a long time, that is about 4,000 years, the choices were limited. Book ownership didn't become a thing until the 16th century for the majority of people. There was homemade music and an oral tradition of storytelling and a bit of cave painting or a trip to the local church or temple so that you could admire the architecture or listen to a priest who was really the storyteller come music maker in chief. 20th century civilization brought us radio and the movies and the paperback, but even in my youth we only had three TV channels. Now we are overstimulated to the point of derangement. If she were speaking to us today from the pages of a book, Jane Eyre would be making the counter-argument. People, she would say, need inaction and calm and the opportunity to stop using their faculties on a more regular basis. She would be avoiding the temptation to swipe right on Mr Rochester on Tinder and looking forward to a hot bath with her smartphone on silent. Oven chips. I went out for my lunchtime walk one day this week and was approached by two firemen. They were not what you would call stereotypical or media perfect images of firemen. One of them was very small and scraggy with bad teeth and the other one was slightly chubby with a lack of good beard care. Actually, I'm not sure it was even a beard. It was more like stubble that had got singed. They were very nice chaps and handed me a leaflet about a community consultation which invited me to have my say on what I thought firemen should be doing. I thought about this for a moment because it seemed to me that I needed to give a more erudite answer than putting out fires. So I decided to stall for time by going in for a Q&A session which I have to admit I wish I'd recorded as it would have made a great podcast interview. My first question was to observe that there must be far fewer fires than there used to be. What do you do nowadays, I asked, when you're just sitting around waiting for a fire to break out? Oh, well, they answered, the reason there are far less fires is because we are so good at our preventive work. This brought back memories of the fire service coming to visit us at school back in the 1960s. They showed us their equipment and told us how important it was not to set fire to our homes. Although coming as I did from a slightly dodgy South London suburb, I'm fairly confident that not all of my classmates took his advice to heart. In fact, I know that at least one of my classmates was reputed to have been gamefully employed as a young adult by a local gang to push flammable materials through the letterboxes of people who were a little late with their loan repayments. We then had a wide-ranging conversation about what modern firefighting is all about. They gave me a fascinating statistic. Apparently, 30% of their calls are fires, 30% are road traffic accidents and similar emergencies, and the remaining 40% are false alarms. 
it really struck me to think actually the biggest single category of their work was not really work at all. I then recounted to them the recent story of a fire alarm in the apartment block next door to mine where my mother-in-law lives. They took me very seriously, even though I was trying to make the story amusing. I suppose there is nothing really funny about being a fireman, and it was wrong of me to make light of the subject. But they did then offer up some other gems of information which surprised me. The first was that the greasy pole for which firemen are famous had been abolished for health and safety reasons. Well, I said, let's be honest, it was just part of a macho image and you didn't really need it. And they grinned at me as if to say, yes, you're right, but we do miss it. The other amazing fact was that the number of fires had dropped enormously since the invention of the oven chip. And that this, in their view, was up there with smoke alarms as a big factor in reducing fires in the home. It made me realise how things could take us by surprise and that unintended consequences could be positive as well as negative. I don't suppose that anyone at McCain's at a meeting said, we really need to do our bit to cut down the number of domestic fires in this country and save our boys in the fire service from getting injured putting them out. I know, let's invent the oven chip. That should do it. But nonetheless, it is a fact that the humble oven chip has made a huge difference. Apparently, people no longer have to dig out a deep fat fryer or pan full of hot oil. They can just put the chips in the oven and it is much safer. So next time you make a plate full of oven chips for your supper, think of the guys at your local fire station and consider how much their quality of life has improved thanks to you and your partnership with McCain's. Suzanne. I went back to Tate Modern this week to see this exhibition for the second time this year with a friend who I probably see on average once a year. That in itself was thought-provoking. I've actually spent more time with a dead painter than I have with one of my oldest friends. We both agreed that we needed to do better in future and not leave it so long. Anyway, we had a very nice time of it, exchanging notes on artists seen and admired. She tipped me off about one Joaquin Corolla, who had had a major retrospective at the National Gallery a couple of years ago, and was a late 19th and early 20th century Spanish painter. I'd never heard of him before, but his work is very uplifting. Just looking at it on the web gives you a lift in these dark days of winter. One of his canvases is the size of a bus, and has more characters in it than the average TV series. Going back to Suzanne, I first fell in love with him about 45 years ago when I was at uni. Studying social sciences was a little dry, so in my spare time I sometimes read books on art whilst hanging out in my little garret in Greenwich. I was particularly struck by his quote that everything in nature is formed upon the sphere, the cone and the cylinder. One must learn to paint these simple figures and then one can do all he may wish. You can see it in his work, and he paved the way for the Cubists and Braque and Picasso. You can also see the influence of Cezanne in many of my notebooks, where I've got bored in NHS meetings and started doodling in the margins, 
trying to draw simple figures using his theories. Sadly, most of these are lost, and in this digital age, doodling has become something of a lost art. But seriously, to love and enjoy an artist over so many decades is something that fills me with wonder as I age. Vincent van Gogh and Edward Hopper are probably the only other painters that I habitually come back to for their love of light and the way they lift my spirits. But I feel so wonderfully ignorant about art, even after reading about it, doing courses and visiting galleries for half a century. Long may my ignorance and my wonder continue. That's all for this week. Just a little parting plug, which is to big up my new website, which you will find at www.eyecatchingwords.blog. This is very much a work in progress like this podcast. So bear with me as we overcome the inevitable teething troubles and polish the content. Have a great week and hear me again here next Sunday night.